nonfiction. Uh, as a fiction writer, which is what I began life as, I published my first novel in 1960, I've been using this material all along. That's what writers do. It's all grist to our mill. That's why you're better off not to be related to a writer or even befriend to a writer. We are shameless in what we use, and we have to be shameless. We're not here to be polite and careful, after all. So this, I have used everything that I used in the memoir in fiction and in plays in the last 25 years, but nobody really took it seriously enough to mind until Knopf called it nonfiction, which I think is kind of interesting. You know, why does it hit harder, and why is it less acceptable if it's called nonfiction? If we really believe in the imagination, presumably fiction might be even more powerful than nonfiction. There might be a way to transform so-called fact that would make it hit even harder. I think that's a really important question and comes down to whether we as women really have the right to write history. Because when I took on this topic, I was determined that what I would do, and it was very grandiose, was to write history. Not just my history, the history of a woman who was born into an upper-class white family in 1937 in the South, that is part of the story, but the history not only of those two families, my father's family and my mother's family, going back to about 1800, and particularly of the women in those families, but also of 150 years of what went on in America. I have a good old BA from what used to be called Radcliffe in English. I don't have any advanced degrees. And what business do I have to assume that I can write history? You have to be pretty impudent to get into this field at all. Because it seems to me the only writing by women that's acceptable is ahistorical, assumes that we float in a vacuum somewhere, sometime, someplace. And that's why it's very easy to dismiss it and forget about it because we haven't dared to take on history. And I think that is one of our many aims as women writers in 1991. So when you're talking about writing about family, first of all, you know, I think, that you're going to have to write about the things that are most dangerous and mo most frightening. For many women, as for me, it's abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. You all know the statistics. That is probably one of the things that's hardest for us to write about because, as we know, society has taught us to feel that we perhaps were somehow responsible. And therefore, to begin to write about it means not only calling into question other people, but perhaps even calling into question our own existence, our own right to our own lives. So first, we start with that, the secrets that we must, for our own survival, we think leave out, which are the secrets that, in fact, we must tell. And also, it seems to me, with a new attempt to define family. It's only safe, really, to define family as those people who raised you. Because when you think of Eudora Welty's book or of uh, 
any other book that's sort of in the canon for women writers, it nearly always seems to stop with those almost mythical figures, our parents and our grandparents. It doesn't seem to include much about siblings, lovers, husbands, children. There's a myth, there's a degree of romanticism about the past that I think you can invoke that gives you a sort of shroud of safety if you're writing about your family, and that is to write about only your parents and your grandparents, not those people whose lives continue today and into the future and who are part of the present, but only people who can perhaps be safely corralled into the past. When I first started out writing, I would have been absolutely horrified if anybody had said to me, you will one day write a piece of autobiography. Graduating in 1958 from college meant getting as far away as possible from the personal, which at that point we thought was only personal. We hadn't let, yet learned that the personal is always political. And to write about what was personal meant to be cornered into so-called women's writing, and some of you will remember how very much discounted that was in the 50s and early 60s. It meant you were in there with the recipes. You were in the slick magazines. And who was going to take that seriously? So in an attempt to get as far away as possible from what might be deemed personal, my first novel, which was called After Such Knowledge, and I was 21 when I wrote it, that takes impudence, was set in, in Europe in the 1920s, obviously a period I had never experienced, and I really knew very little about Europe. But when it boiled down to what this novel was really about, it really wasn't about Europe or the 1920s or any of that. That was more or less protective coloring. It was about a woman whose life had been ruined by a pregnancy for which she had, instead of getting an abortion, which of course in the 50s was Ill illegal, had married and spent the rest of her life in a very unhappy marriage and was now facing her daughter being pregnant and whether she would advise her to get an illegal abortion. So, in a sense, the attempt to distance it was unsuccessful, at least for me as a writer, because that was one of my great fears and my great issues as a young woman in the 1950s. So I think the protective coloring didn't really prevent me from writing about what was at that time a great secret, the fear we all felt. Some of you who were in college at the time will remember the late night talks the desperation, the feeling that there was no one to turn to, and the terrible shame that women felt around issues of pregnancy and birth control. At the same time that I published this novel in 1960, disguised, of, of a friend of mine who had been in writing classes at Harvard also published a novel called A Fume of Poppies. You will know his name. It's Jonathan Kozol, who's very well known as a writer about education and very much respected. He never wrote another novel, and in fact, when I talked to him, he claims that he doesn't count this novel among his works. Jonathan, being perhaps less frightened than I was of being labeled a writer, a personal writer, wrote about his own experience as an undergraduate with a woman he was in love with. 
It was not in the least disguised. It was clearly Cambridge in the 50s. It was clearly a first-person narrative. It was called fiction. But it didn't attempt to take on any protective coloring at all. I don't think the two novels were either paid a great deal of attention to, much to my surprise. But, and I don't think I can draw many conclusions from that, except that he did, as a young man starting out as a writer, not have the fear that I felt about talking about his own personal and private experience. It didn't occur to him that he would end up in McCall's next to the recipes. As I say, the silence after that novel was rather large. And when I went on writing, I began to get a little closer to the truth of my own life, even though I was writing nonfiction. I mean fiction, excuse me. Two collections of short stories published in 67 and 70. I was forced closer by events in my life over which I had no control. I lost two brothers in the 60s to suicidal accidents that no one could discuss. And I began to write about the death of young men in fiction. Why young men die. Why they get in cars and drive into stone walls. What the effect of drinking was at that time on young men and of the whole myth of male supremacy, particularly in the South, which seemed to mean that there were no limits that a young man in his 20s, particularly coming from privilege, could do absolutely anything and end up dead, much to everyone's surprise. So there was a sort of limitlessness in male lives that I was very interested in writing about in fiction because I had begun to feel the very stringent limits in my own life as a woman. By then I had two sons, I would soon have three, and I had begun that terrible fight, which I know some of you have experienced, to continue as a serious creative artist while raising children. Absolutely unresolved conflict full of all, all kinds of problems that I think we haven't even begun to deal with. Certainly as a society we don't even want to acknowledge how important it is for creative women to find some resolution to that particular conflict. So both of these, losing two brothers and having two sons during the same 10-year ten, ten period, forced me into telling more secrets, even in fictional form. And the first writing that my parents really objected to was a short story that was to them and to me, although perhaps not to other people, clearly about my younger brother who had died about three years earlier. I was not protected by the fact that it was fiction. And I don't think we ever are protected by form. If it's true, it's going to rile somebody and probably rile them pretty deeply. Then, having done those two collections of short stories, in the 70s I began to be forced into yet more self-revelation. And I do think we're forced into it. I don't think anyone really chooses it because it's very painful and we pay a great price. It's not an easy choice and yet it is really the only choice. In the 70s I began to write novels again, partly because my children were older and I could deal with the longer form. And I wrote four novels, none of which were published at the time, that began to deal with the issue of women coming into their own power. Very dangerous. 
the modern women's movement was just beginning to get on its feet again after those long years of silence in the 50s. And that certainly made an enormous contribution to my willingness to deal with the issues of women in power. I had gotten away with avoiding it when I was in my 20s because I really didn't have any support. I was alone. And I don't think we begin to deal with issues of power until we have some support from other women. It's too dangerous. It's even more dangerous than the issues of sex and dying. It has to do with change. And that's what's, I think, most threatening. Anyway, in these novels, one novel was about two sisters, one of whom is self-destructive and is destroying herself, and in the course of the book, ends up destroying herself. But her younger sister, by appearance a much more conventional woman, really comes into her own power. So there was a woman emerging. Nobody wanted to publish that book. It has a very innocuous title. It's called The Matron of Honor. Then I wrote, I wrote the first novel I've ever written, and perhaps the last novel I will ever write from a man's point of view called Straight Man. And it was also the first thing I've ever written that was funny. And as we know, that is really probably not very acceptable. This was about a man who, in a sense, is in the process of losing his power, an instructor at a college in the South who has led a very careful life, but along the way picks up a drifter woman whom he falls in love with, and she eventually wrecks his life. So that during the course of the book, as she gains power, he is losing it. And that, at that time, I wrote that in the late 70s, seemed like a very risky thing to do. No one has ever published that novel either. And then I wrote a novel about a woman who in the process of self-destruction destroys other people. So this was another step along the way. Women destroying themselves is fairly acceptable, but women dragging other people down into the pit with them is less acceptable. She ends up burning down the house in which the man who has rejected her lives. One of those bridges that once crossed can never be crossed back. No one wanted to read that novel. And then the novel which is coming out next spring, which is called Small Victories, again an innocuous title, which is about a woman who in the midst of a very impoverished life in the mountains of North Carolina decides that the only thing that really matters to her is that she remain in control of her sister who is sick and the family wants to institutionalize this woman. Uh, she kidnaps her sister from the institution, much, much against the sister's will, and continues to keep her as her raison d'etre. That novel is coming out, as I said, in the spring. Zolan Press in Cambridge, a new small press, is publishing it. And it may again be a question of some protective coloring. It is set in a definite time and in a definite place. And it is a woman who claims her own power, this time at the expense of another woman. Very dangerous stuff. But it does have that nice gloss of the South around it. And one of the benefits we have as Southern women writers is that we can call on that kind of charm when things get too dangerous. And whether it's a question of the diction that we use, uh, the charming uh, folk expressions, uh, the physical beauty of the South, 
the lyrical language that we can call on, it makes the risk seem a little bit less dangerous. I think in the end it doesn't matter. But along the way, it may mean finding a publisher, and it may mean finding some readers because of that sweetness that writing about the South can give you access to if you choose to use it. It makes me think about going to see Brian Friel's play last night, which is also a very sweet play. And I think the Irish are very Southern and the Southern are very Irish. Although, in fact, it's about the destruction of women. But you don't need to be bothered by that because of the enormous amount of charm in the production and the beautiful acting and the beautiful set. And you can avoid, perhaps, acknowledging what is really going on to these five sisters. I think that's a very interesting quandary because when I look back and realize that of my 30 years of writing, probably 5% has been published. What price do we have to pay or what price should we pay to be published if we insist on telling these secrets? I don't know the answer to that. I'm only grateful that now five books will be published out of this 30-year stint. When I came to writing the memoir in 1988, um, 1986 was actually when it started, the companies of which I was a minority shareholder, 15% shareholder, had just been sold. And I was in the midst of that kind of um, whirlpool that you can get into, at least in small towns. I assume it doesn't happen in New York, where everyone is looking for a scapegoat because it's so confusing and it's so frightening to deal with out-of-control change. And all of us, I think, look for some hook to hang that kind of event on so that it won't seem so scary. And usually that hook or that scapegoat is a woman. Not very often a woman of privilege because we tend to hide or be hidden we tend, and I think I can generalize maybe safely, to be very male identified, uh, to support our husbands, our fathers, our brothers, uh, to be married to politicians but not to run for office. And as long as we are protected by privilege, the patriarchy probably won't attack us because they don't want our husbands, fathers, brothers, etc., rising up and writing letters to the editor. But the minute a woman of privilege separates herself from those men, it becomes clear what the truth is, which is there really are no women of privilege. It really is not a category. There are only women who attach themselves to privilege and sell their souls to stay there. We don't own our own money because the patriarchy doesn't really believe that women own their own money. And we certainly don't own any status, position, or power because it's all dependent on our male relatives. So it's an artificial category and one that I think we need to think a lot about because we want so-called women of privilege to separate themselves from that myth and come forward.
It's the only hope, really, for, among other things, for getting women into the political system as it's now arranged, because those women, and I'm among them, are the only women who have access to the kind of money that can fund political campaigns. That's the way the men have done it all along, as you know. So it's extremely important, but first that myth has to be pierced, that somehow women of privilege are different from the rest, that somehow they really are protected, because we really are not, unless we sell our souls to the system, which of course many of us do. Anyway, it was dangerous to write that book, but it was much less dangerous than staying silent. And again, I think that's a situation probably all of you will face if you come to that kind of book, project, so forth. Staying silent for me meant letting other people write about me. That's the worst fate of all. It almost doesn't matter who it is or what their intentions may be. It objectifies me. It turns me into something else something that certainly doesn't make sense to me and that I don't accept, but that many other people will accept. So to allow other people to tell this story as they were busily doing, while I tried to stay under my rock and be quiet and be safe was even more dangerous. That's myth generating. And we usually are only aware of it in terms of celebrities for whom I think we often have very little sympathy, perhaps for good reason. But myths are generated about all women. And if you have an opportunity to respond and to write your version, it's much less dangerous than leaving those myth, myths to float around. I don't know if any of you felt, as I did during the hearings over the weekend, a terrible amount of pain before Anita Hill spoke for herself and a terrible sense of anxiety that perhaps well-intentioned people were going to speak for her and try to tell her story for her and that that would really be more intolerable than anything else that went on. And I know I was enormously excited and relieved when she came forward and so eloquently and admirably told her own story. We do have to speak for ourselves, no matter what the price may be. And I don't care how sympathetic or well-informed or even possibly, I suppose, feminist a writer might be, we do have to speak for ourselves. Nobody else can do it. I was not fooled about the consequences of writing this particular book, and for that I'm really very grateful. It's important to be aware of the consequences when you take risks. It's important to face that implacable quality that consequences have so that you don't imagine that by telling things a little bit differently or leaving something out, you can buy your way off. The consequences are there. And for me, they were not economical because no one could threaten me with financial ruin, but they had to do with losing the delusion that I had a birth family. Now, it was a delusion because in a family as dysfunctional as that, there really was no support, no understanding. And therefore, what I was giving up was not what may be true for you, which is a real family system. I was giving up the delusion. I was giving up the fact of going to Thanksgiving dinners 
or Christmas dinners or whatever. I was not giving up real, sustaining, nurturing relationships. If that had been the question, of course, it would not have been a question because I don't think any family that functions exiles any of its members. I don't think that's the way functional families operate. They may be very angry, there may be scenes, who knows what, but they do not exile their members. That's the way dysfunctional families happen. And in mine, it had happened every generation. There were, it was at least one woman who was exiled and either survived or didn't survive, but she was out. The reason that was so clear to me was that my mother told me what would happen. Being at that time 80 years old and in full possession of her admirable faculties, she said to me that if I wrote this book, which she knew I was considering at that time, and if I tried to find out what had happened to my step-grandmother, she would never speak to me again. And it was clear, and as I say, I'm rather grateful for that. It was terribly painful. I was hanging on to the hope that maybe someday she would not only speak to me, but actually love me, which is what that's all about, after all. But in deciding that I couldn't afford to sacrifice my integrity to that hope, I feel as though I finally came into my own as a writer at 50. Because as long as we keep that hope that we can somehow bargain away with people and cut our stories to the fashion, whatever it may be, and therefore keep love or gain love, we will never really be able to speak honestly because we're still hoping that that bargain will somehow work. I don't imagine it ever does, but maybe there are cases in which at least it means you can keep the delusion. And delusions are important, as Ibsen knows, makes life easier. So when she told me she wouldn't speak to me again, first of all, I knew she meant it. It wasn't an idle threat. And since she is the matriarch of that particular family, I knew it would probably mean that none of my siblings and their families would ever speak to me again, and that's been true too, because you can usually see the pattern. It's too dangerous to go against the person, whoever that may be, whom the family feels is in charge of their survival. And this has nothing to do with money. This has to do with the way we're trained to think we live on the bounty of people who don't know what bounty is. We live on crumbs or hope to continue to live on crumbs. So I lost not only my mother and my father at that time, but I also lost my brother and my sister and their families. Um, as I say, I do, it sounds melodramatic. I didn't lose anything that was really nurturing or supportive. I lost the delusion. I now have to think where I'm going to go for Thanksgiving or Christmas. <laughs> it was also a great liberation, as some of you I'm sure will imagine. It meant I no longer had to try to fit in to that particular pattern. I no longer had to try anymore to gain their esteem and their affection. And I no longer had the weird discounting that goes on when we do try to keep our connection to privilege because it does end up being a sort of discount. We're not really on our own yet. When I was going about beginning the research for this book, I had to make some 
unusual decisions. Usually, I think, when we're writing a book about contemporary events as well as the past, we would normally interview people. That would certainly be the journalist's approach to go to everyone, for instance, who had been involved in the sale of these companies and say, tell me what your version is. But I had a reason for not doing that, and I'd like to read that to you. This is the paperback, uh, which came out, Applause Books brought it out about six months ago. This is the author's note. In recreating my past, I asked questions about the world that once encased me, questions I did not have the authority or the audacity to ask when I was still a part of that world. In attempting to answer some of these questions, I have relied almost entirely on the printed word, newspapers, magazines, letters and diaries, and especially books, which have illuminated some small part of the world of which I was once a member. I did not interview the many people who were and are part of that world and who formed it. Since they are bound by ties of loyalty and doctrine, love and fear, their replies would be, it seemed to me, defenses of past positions or explanations of past decisions. In a dynasty, maintaining power is more important than any individual and ultimately more important than the truth. Women have often been silenced in history, our voices discredited or blotted out. We have been silenced to preserve elements in the hierarchy, political or social, public or private, institutional or personal. I chose to speak. I think that right away raises a couple of interesting questions. Obviously, one of them is about my integrity as a writer. We tend to interview other people in order to either buttress our opinions or bring new opinions into focus. So I did not have that as a kind of corrective device from my point of view. It also, I think, raises very much the issue of money, which is central to everything that I write about and to a great deal of our lives. My story would not have aroused very much opposition if it had been about poor people. Nobody would have cared. It wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't even have been worth attacking. The thing that made it so outrageous from the point of view of most mainstream reviewers was that it, about, it was about that very small section of the population, perhaps 5%, that owns the great majority of the assets in this country and is, that is considered in a certain way to be above and beyond reproach. That is what made this as revolutionary a book as it is and not the stories I was telling in themselves. It was the people that I was talking about. The fact that I was talking about my grandfather who was ambassador to England in the 30s. Nobody writes about ambassadors. The fact that I was writing about the possibility that he had murdered his second wife because we all know ambassadors are not murderers.
So I think that has to be set in context because otherwise it would seem to be that any woman who writes her own story is going to have to face the kind of onslaught I faced in terms of reviews. I don't think that's so. I think it's much more likely that we would simply be silenced by neglect, that nobody would care. That doesn't make the story any less important to tell. It just changes the kind of risks that you take in telling it. I feel enormously blessed in having been able to write this book and to find a publisher. And I also feel that it could not have come about without the women's movement as I know it and without my friends. That's something that I didn't really value enough, I think, until the last 10 years. In the end, when you write this kind of book, you are not going to get any support except from people who are either your close friends, and in my case, they happen to be nearly all women, or strangers, also nearly always women, who identify with your story and let you know that. It's never going to be from reviewers. It's never going to be the sort of official stamp of approval. It doesn't matter how well written the book is. And in fact, I began to laugh sometimes because the very worst and most savage reviews would often throw me the bone of saying the book was well written. It's quite a bone. In any event, that I think is what matters in the end, is that we become aware of the great depth of support for this kind of writing. I continue, three years later, to get two or three letters a week from women I have never met and will never meet who picked up this book somewhere in this country and read it and write me long letters, not simply to tell me they like the book, but to tell me their stories. And their stories are in many ways my story or your story. That is what is important because if we continue to depend on reviews and mainstream critics, we are never going to be affirmed. We're never going to continue to be able to do this writing. I wish all those letters I had could be nailed up on the walls of the New York Times because those are the true responses. Those are the responses that come from the heart and they are the ones that matter. As I say, I feel blessed and not least in being here tonight. So at this point, I hope I can ask all of you not just to ask me questions, but also to share with me some of your stories because I have a feeling some of you have probably been through this bramble bush in your own way. Thank you. Yes, in back. <laughs> it's sort of awkward, isn't it? But come on. In, How do you do?
Sure. Well, it's a very familiar attack. We saw it again, of course, with Anita Hill. And I think the familiarity of it makes it clear that it's not personal. I dealt with it as another of the lies that I'm fairly used to dealing with. In other words, it bothered me a lot more that someone, I can't remember who, said I had bad teeth, which happens to be true, than that I was a disturbed person, which happens to be not true. And I think it's very important to realize that the attacks are always the same on women. No matter what you do or what you say, it's you're disturbed, you live in a fantasy land, you're either, in the old terminology, promiscuous, or, and I love the fact that it's or, you're a lesbian, uh, you beat your children, um, and you've been married too many times. That's about sums it up. Maybe some of you all can think of a few others. And when you realize that, it removes the threat. You know, if you believe what they're saying about you, then, of course, you would begin to suffer terribly in your self-esteem and in your view of yourself. And that might happen, as I say, if they happen to hit on the fact that you have bad teeth, and you do, then you may feel some pain and have to run to the orthodontist and get braces or something. But as long as you're aware of the fact that this is purely political, and that any woman who sticks her head up is going to get some version of this, it doesn't hurt. Because it's not, it wasn't about me. You know, it was about this stereotype, the dangerous woman, the Cali figure, the destroyer, and what they say about her, which will always now hang around me like a kind of cloud. But on the other hand, we all have clouds hanging around us after a few years, whether it's what an ex-husband said, what an ex-employee said, whether, whether it's a, what a jilted lover said, what a lost friend said. There are all these things hanging around us, and only the individual woman knows which one of those is really applicable. And that's the only one that matters, or two. Yes. How do you do? Good question. It's a good question. Um, I think I would never have done it if I felt my fiction was doing it in its way. You know, I would have continued to write fiction or plays or poetry. But the fiction was not quite doing it. It was not reaching people on the same level. It was not stirring people. And therefore, I think I would eventually have decided to try nonfiction, even without all these other people writing books and so on. It maybe would have taken me five or 10 more years, because I keep hoping that the works of the imagination can have the same impact as the so-called works of fact. And we know these categories are largely delusional anyway. But that, I think, would have been what 
it would have prompted me eventually. It's just the fact that I had a nagging suspicion that the fiction wasn't doing it. Absolutely. And of course, that's true. You know, I mean, obviously, I can't be threatened with losing a job. I, I don't have to worry about paying my rent. And that makes an enormous difference. And I would never want to pretend that it didn't. But if you're talking about power, the minute women of privilege try to lay hands on power, and this may be even in terms of using their own money, they are no longer protected. Now, if we live, so to speak, within our incomes, if we were just good consumers and used money to buy things and clothes and apartments and houses and trips and so on, then I think we are protected, not only economically but also psychologically. We're not going to be criticized. We'll be in our little nest. But if at any moment a woman even, for instance, decides to give some of her money to an unpopular cause, she's exposed right away because the privilege at that point evaporates and she's just another unruly woman, but a woman with access to more power in terms of money. And that makes her even more dangerous. It's a good way to put it. I never thought of it exactly that way, but I think insofar as we believe that we are protected by the male establishment, we are more vulnerable. You know, we may really think that we're safe, and that's not so. As I say, unless we just remain good consumers, and then we probably are safe. Thank you. I think that's impossible. I don't think those two things will go together. There probably are families, and maybe yours is one of them, who can really accept the reality of one of their members, but I think that's an extremely rare family. And I think at some point you may need to decide whether that really is your goal, to have your mother and your son accept you and remember you as you are, or whether you want to really find what may be your true audience 
which probably is not your blood relatives. If you remember when Nadine Gordimer got the Nobel Prize here, for the first time I saw her pictured with her family. I, don't, I had never seen her family before, her husband, her adult children. And it was amusing, first of all, to see that happen, and secondly, to see her say that these were not the people for whom she wrote. You know, she loves them, they're her family, but that is not her audience. Well, if you're not published, that's a really a separate issue. If your story is not just for your family, then you will eventually find a publisher. It may be hard and it may take years, but I think before you even begin on that journey, it's important to decide whether it's for your family, in which case it really probably doesn't need to be published, or whether it's for a another, a different audience. Not a more important audience or a less important audience, but an audience that perhaps has the ability to understand you as you really are without being blinded by stereotypes about what a father should be or what a son should be. Good luck. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Yeah. That's a lot right there. You're going to add something more? I think, again, that's important uh, to try to think about the way you're describing this so you don't beat up on yourself more than the patriarchy is already doing. Uh, the question about my sons was very, very difficult. Um, I dedicated this book to them, but they have not yet read it. They're 21, 25, and 30. And I'm not certain they ever will read it because it simply puts them in what, from their point of view, is too painful and difficult a situation, either to agree with me or to disagree with me. And they just don't want to have to deal with that, um, which I have accepted as I have accepted their inability to understand 
other things, many things about me, and probably my inability to understand many things about them. It would certainly be different if they were small children. This is their adults. Um, one of them keeps careful relationships with all of my ex-family, which is his choice, and they are delighted with that. Uh, these people are not per se vindictive. It's selective vindictiveness. So they are delighted that this young man stays in touch with them. He, uh, as I say, does it really for his own reasons. He's very fond of them. He's more like them in his outlook. He's a middle child. The other two have their own problems with my ex-family. Certainly my book didn't help them with those problems, but they also, I don't think, made those problems any worse. So it varies according to the child, the adult. And I think there's some consolation in that because it's not as though I have taken their options away. Uh, they can deal with this as they choose, you know. Um, as to husbands, um, well, I think you have several worries. If you're really worried about people thinking badly of you, then you should never write. You know, uh, these are contradictions in terms. Uh, let other people write about you and hope they tell some nice lies, right? Um, if you're worried about being sued, that's a real worry. We remember what happened to Nora Ephraim, right? Uh, that I think he did get some kind of settlement uh, or took some of the proceeds from that book or there was some kind of settlement. And I think we're going to see that more and more, particularly with popular books, you know, with books that make a fair amount of money, that these ex-husbands or ex-lovers are going to come in and try to get a piece of the pie and probably will get a piece of the pie. But think how that turns the whole situation on its head. If you can afford to lose the money, it's probably worth it. It goes about breaking some stereotypes right there. Um, on the more difficult and complicated moral issue, I am not yet uh, prepared to write about any of the men I was married to because I simply don't have enough objectivity yet. And I think objectivity is a very weighted word. But what I mean is I don't think I can yet deal with all the facets. And what I write might possibly be rather oversimplified, obviously in my favor, right? And I want to wait until I can really see these men in the round because I think it will make much more interesting writing than anything that I could write now. And I should add, you know, this is a 30-year process and I'm not through it yet. Um, it may be that I will never write about them, but I will certainly write about relationships that are like those relationships. I will take what I learned from those relationships and use it in writing, even if I never specifically tie it to this particular person. Um, Ex-husbands end up being very boring I think ex-everybody's turned up, end up being very boring. You know, you go through it, you get out of it whatever you need to get out of it, and uh, uh, life becomes more interesting afterwards. So they may not, in the end, be the best material for writing, you know. <laughs> what else? Well, thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Maybe what we should do is uh, take a five-minute break. Uh, there's wine over there, and um, we do have a business meeting for those of us on the Women's Committee, and I hope that we won't lose you.
Um, but le let's just stop for a few minutes. And thank you very much, Sally. It was really a very interesting and wonderful presentation. Other people can say something, but it's not restricted to you. Right. <laughs>